The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. We're going to talk about today is how uh, financial tensions exist and have uh, power over us. Uh, one of the, again, the curious things for anybody trying to understand in our passage is this illustration. I want you to pick up, uh, if you would, uh, with me in verse number 22. Jesus talking about treasure. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he says in verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? It's almost like as we're reading the subject that Jesus gives an illustration that almost seems to not fit with what he's talking about because he starts talking about the eye. He starts talking about blindness or darkness, the ability to see one's ability. And um, if you think about the illustration that Jesus is giving, in essence, he's saying this, okay? If your eyes are good, they're taking in light, right? So that when you walk around the room, you can see and you don't stumble, okay? So if your eyes are good, they're taking in light. You can see you don't stumble. And he says, but if your eyes, if, you, if you're blind, uh, there's light that's all around your whole body, but your eyes are not taking it in, so the light is not having an effect because your eyes are dark, so you're not able to see, and so you're going to be caused to stumble. And you say, well, that's great. I mean, it's kind of obvious what Jesus is saying, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you went over to Luke chapters 11 and 12, Jesus is also speaking there on money, and he brings up the same illustration, and he talks about the eye again, and he's talking about uh, all of these things, he gives this illustration, and then he, he breaks away from this, and he says this, beware of greed, he says, beware of greed, it's like, what in the world is he talking about, all of a sudden he's talking about blindness, and he says, be careful, you might be greedy, be careful, you might be covetousness, covetous, and it's, it's kind of like, again, we, we scratch our head and say, what in the world's going on? Why is he saying, watch out for greed? And uh, in essence, what he's telling us or teaching us is that he's saying that materialism, which, which by the way, materialism is, is an inordinate desire or dependence on money and material things. But materialism has a peculiar effect on us. It can blind us spiritually. It can distort the way that we see things, and it has power over the way that you see everything. And uh, let me give you some examples of this, because perhaps uh, maybe we can, through our text, understand what Jesus is trying to teach on uh, money and giving. First of all, materialism has the power to blind you to materialism. Materialism has the power to blind you to materialism. How many, when we were in Esther and we spoke on pride, many of you, I've had many people that say, wow, I never thought of myself in a sense of being a prideful person. That's the thing about pride, isn't it? We don't ever think that we're prideful. And uh, remember we talked about both the inferiority and the superiority parts of pride, that sometimes how pride masks itself is in the inferiority side, meaning pride is me thinking of myself, even if it means I'm up on myself or down on myself. And so pride hides itself because we only tend to think of it in the, inferior, or in the superior and not in the inferior. 
It's kind of the same thing with greed. And when we think about greed, materialism and greed has the power to blind you. Remember, we're talking about how money and how financial tension has power over us. And sometimes we don't even think about it. But in my observation over the years in, uh, in Bible studies and preaching is that when you come to the subject of greed, it's, again, very similar to that of pride. Most people aren't terribly interested in doing Bible studies on the subject of greed. Most people are not terribly interested in doing, hearing Bible preaching on the subject of greed or covetousness on money. And the reason why is not because I, I think that people are generally hostile towards the subject uh, or to even say that's a terrible subject and I don't want to hear about it. It's just when it comes to greed, like pride, everyone seems to generally be sure that it isn't true of them. In other words, like pride, we tend to think, I'm not greedy, I'm not covetous, I'm not prideful. And this is the reason why Jesus said, watch out for greed. Watch out for covetousness. Watch out for this, because it's something that causes your eye to be dark and unaware of what's going on around you It causes you to view things or not see things spiritually. And money, we know what the Bible says, the love of money is the what? The root of all evil. And so what we understand is that greed, covetousness, can blind us even to covetousness. It can blind us to greed. It can blind us to materialism itself. And greed is different than other sins. And that's why Jesus says, Notice here, it's an eye sin. Remember what Jesus said, or what, what Paul t- told us, love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He talks about all that's in the world, and the first thing he says is the lust of the what? The eyes. We tend to think of lust in the eyes. We tend to think about looking on evil things, or promiscuous things, or sexual things. And we tend to think about that as the lust of the eyes. But how many know that covetousness is the lust of the eyes? Before, he get, before you, uh, the Ten Commandments even teaches us, before you even get to committing adultery, you covet your neighbor's wife. You covet the things that are around you. You covet things that don't belong to you. And that is the lust of the eyes. And Jesus is identifying this problem of materialism, this problem of greed as an eye sin. And he says, this darkens your eyes spiritually. Jesus didn't say to anybody, watch out, you might be committing adultery. Um, no, nobody, nobody says, uh, nobody's unaware that you're not committing adultery. And they're not committing adultery and saying, oh, you're not my wife. That, that, that doesn't happen. Are you with me? That, that, you, know, you go, oh, I, I, it caught me off guard. I wasn't aware that I was doing it. I mean, people are aware that they're doing it. People are aware of those kind of sins. But you know what we're not aware of? We're not aware of covetousness sometimes. We're not aware of greed. It's something that uh, kind of hides itself. He says, watch out, you might be greedy. It blinds you in a way that even adultery doesn't. And over the years, uh, as a pastor, I've come to t- uh, people have come to talk to me about sins. But honestly, of all the things that people have talked to me and asked me for counsel on, I can't remember anybody ever coming and saying, Pastor, I'm struggling with greed. I'm struggling with covetousness. I'm struggling with materialism. I need to repent of that sin. Would you agree to me, with me that Jesus identifies this as a sin? That greed is a sin? That covetousness is a sin? That materialism is a sin? He's identifying this, but the hard thing is it's hard to, it's hard to nail it down, isn't it? It's hard to identify it. it. It's hard because it becomes subjective to us in the way that we look at it. Jesus is saying, the problem is, is you don't ask. You don't consider the possibility 
that you might be greedy. You say, me? Greedy? That's someone else. Remember pride? This is, I wish somebody else was hearing this message. That's for, you know, other people other than me. And you think of rich people. You think of people who spend tons of money. You think, you know, most of you even have a relative who's more extravagant with money than you are, right? And so you, you think of those people. That's all it takes. All you have to do with the sin of greed is know someone who's more greedy than you, right? That's all you have to do. You just have to think about someone who's more materialistic than you are, who's more greedy than you, and that alleviates you of having to focus on your own greed. And all you have to do is know someone who's really greedy and you won't think you're greedy. You wouldn't even consider the possibility uh, that you're materialistic. And one of the tests for this problem that creeps into our lives is if you say this is not a problem of mine. That's a very bad sign, by the way. A symptom of this sin is thinking that you're sure that it's not true of you. Are you with me? A symptom of materialism and greed is thinking that you are sure that this is not true of you. Jesus is saying, watch out. This is a sin of the eye. It darkens your eye. It keeps you from being able to spiritually see. And let me give you just kind of maybe an example illustration of how this works itself out in our lives. Think about it this way. If you choose a job, and by the way, not a job you love, not a job that you're good at, not a job that helps people, but just a job that makes you money. So you're not thinking about when you choose the job. Do I love this? Is this aligned with my giftedness? Is this something I'm good at? Is this something that helps people? Is this something that's good for the community? Is this something that lifts people up? Uh, is this something that pleases God? We don't think that way. We just think about how much, how much am I going to get paid? How much money am I going to make? What is this going to do for me? And we do it because we get a certain status in life. You choose the job on the basis of that. Uh, and for five to ten years in that job, the adrenaline can keep you going. But after you find yourself, uh, after that, you find yourself, what, empty inside. And why did you choose the job? Your eye was dark, and all you were thinking about was money. That was it. Not only can materialism blind you as you choose your job, but it can blind you in your conduct of your job. For example, many companies out there are making money but they're hurting people. You with me? Many companies out there are making money, but they're hurting people. Um, They're hurting towns. They're hurting people. They're hurting all sorts of people in the company. And what are they doing? Are they saying, uh, people don't go and say, well, in order to make money, uh, I don't think necessarily these companies are saying, by the way, in order to make money, let's go out and ruin the environment. Let's go out and ruin the town. They're, they're They're not saying that, but here's the thing, they're not thinking about it. Either. They're not asking the question, are we helping people? They're not even caring about that. All they're caring about is the bottom line. And are there things in my, that my company is doing to help people or hurt people? Is it helping the town? Is it hurting the town? Is it helping the neighborhood or is it hurting? And, and at the end of the day, many people, they just don't want to know. They, don't just, they just don't care. Um, greed doesn't ask the question. Greed masks itself, it hides itself, materialism hides itself, but it doesn't ask the question. That kind of brings us to the second point on materialism. Materialism keeps you from asking the hard questions about your lifestyle. Materialism keeps you from asking the hard questions about your lifestyle. And one of the problems is the kinds of people you come into contact with. Sometimes your friends 
are making 10 times more money than you are. Sometimes uh, you might have a good job, but there's a person making 10 times, 50 times what you're making. Don't forget the person you think is rich is hanging out with people, by the way, that make 10 times what they make. There's always somebody that's making more that we can compare ourselves to. And so we don't ask these questions. We don't ask, do I really need to spend as much money on this as I do? Do I need to be putting this much money into my house? Do I need to be spending this much money on clothes? Immediately you think of people who spend much more, and so you don't ask the question. You don't say, aren't there ways I could be giving more of my money to the church? How many asked that question this week? Aren't, aren't there ways I, I could be giving more of my money away? No, we're not, we don't think in terms of that. Uh, aren't there ways I could be giving more money to the poor, to my friends, to, to neighbors? Aren't there ways I could be more radically generous if I made this and that change? And, and the problem with materialism is that we don't want to ask because we don't want to think about it. Are you with me? I know this is going to be a riveting message today as we talk about money. Everybody's gripping tightly your wallet. But that's our nature, isn't it? It's like, I don't want to ask the pastor. I didn't come in today to ask these questions about, you know, what I spend my money on and how I spend my money and, and, and how I waste my money. I don't, I, don't even, I don't even want to think about it because if I don't think about it, then I don't have to consider it. I don't have to consider it. Let me give you this illustration. In 1635, there was a guy named Robert Kane. He was a member of the first congregational church in Boston. And he was doing well as a businessman. But his elders in the church disciplined him for the sin of greed. Now, that's something we hear a lot about, church discipline for the sin of greed, right? This is what happens. He, how did he commit the sin of greed, according to his church? That, that merited church discipline. It was because he was selling his product at 6% profit. And the church had decided that three or four years before Christians uh, were only allowed to sell their wares at 4% profit. So when they found out he was doing 6%, they disciplined him for the sin of greed. And some of you are asking this question like I was when I read this story. Where does the Bible say that I have to only make 4% profit? What are you talking about? These church elders knew that when you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery, but when you're greedy, sometimes you're not aware that you're greedy. So they sat down as Christians. They said this, Jesus talks about money all the time. He's always saying, don't spend all your money on yourself. And some business practices, therefore, would you agree that some business practices, therefore, must be greedy? Some business practices, therefore, must be greedy. I mean, for the amount of what Jesus is talking about, some, some lifestyles have to be greedy. And how are we going to know which ones they are? How do we know what business practices are greedy? How would we know what lifestyles are greedy if it's just subjective, if it's just up to people to decide on their own whether they feel that they're greedy or not? And so what they said as a church, as a Christian community, let's sit down and decide uh, at our time and in our place in this spot, what is a greedy lifestyle and what are greedy business practices? So by consensus, they decided on some rules. They decided to hold each other accountable. It was consensual. They agreed as a church that it would be greedy for them to make more than 4% profit from people that were in their town, in their culture, in their community. 
at their time. Now, this is 1635. You understand? I'm not saying by any means that today in our economy, with all the different kinds of jobs and fields that we have, that this is a nice, simple rule of thumb. Or I'm not even espousing that if you make more than 4% profit on a product, that that means you're greedy. But I'm trying to show you that there has to be some kind of standard in your life for greed. There has to be. Why is it that there are standards in our lives for everything else that God calls sinful, but when it comes to greed, we don't set any standards? We don't say what's too much, what's too far. We, we, don't, we don't ask the questions, and we don't allow other people to hold us accountable for it either. We don't say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm spending too much in this area. I'm not spending enough. Come on, are you with me? Uh, God has given us the responsibility as a church to care for the poor, hasn't he? Did he give us the responsibility? I understand the government's doing a lot of things, but I also understand that's part of the problem. And I understand that God originally gave Christians the responsibility of caring for people that nobody cares about. Are you with me? That God gave the responsibility to the church to reach the world for Christ. Whose responsibility is that? It's ours. Now, I understand that within the realms of our locality, we do what we can. But here's the question. If I never ask, am I doing what I can... Am I doing all that I can? Am I doing as much as I can? Or am I thinking of myself only in this regard? You've got to have some standards. And and by the way, how many of this? You can't trust yourself. That's the principle. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't trust yourself just to be self-aware of whether you're greedy. You can't trust yourself to decide this. I know what you're thinking. I know what I'm thinking. We don't want to think about it. We, we don't want to consider it. When I spend money, when you spend money, we don't want to sit down and think, did I really have to do that? I don't want to talk to other people about it. I don't even want to talk to myself about it. I just want to do it because that's what I want to do. Isn't that what our culture tells us? Isn't that what greed tells us? Isn't that what covetous, te- covetousness tells us? Just buy it. Don't think about the ramifications of it. Don't think about whether you need it or don't need it. Don't think about whether you should spend it or not spend it. Just do it. Because it's what you want to do. And by the way, that's what has infiltrated in the church this thought process of all my money belongs to me and I could just give a tip to God whenever I feel like doing it. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with I have a responsibility to God. Uh, I have a responsibility to my community. I have a responsibility to those that are around me. I have a responsibility uh, to the local New Testament church. I have a responsibility And I have to keep my responsibility. And we know that people have a problem with responsibility when it comes to money today, don't we? People have a a problem with responsibility. We live in a culture where it's, it's even negotiable whether you take care of your own children, you take care of your spouse, you take care of your bills, you take care... I mean, people have a problem when it comes to responsibility. But in our society, people don't have a problem with spending money on themselves. I mean, that's what we do in our society. Would you agree with me that covetousness is a problem in our culture? It's a problem in our culture. We have no problem saying amen to that. But would you agree with me today that possibly materialism, covetousness has crept its way into the church somewhat? And that we also have to deal with that and hold, us, hold ourselves to a biblical standard? That we have to hold one another accountable when it comes to this, just like we hold one another accountable when it comes to anything? I mean, uh, when it comes to any sin that's, that's in our lives? Is there anybody in this room, self-included, who would dare to say, I'm doing fine when it comes to material things, I couldn't give any more away. I couldn't live any more simply. I couldn't be any more generous with my money. I'm pretty generous. The rest of the world 
knows better, by the way, don't they? When I first traveled to other countries, and namely when we first started going to Africa, I used to think that I was a pretty poor person. Are you with me? I used to think that I was a pretty frugal person. I used to think that I was a pretty simple person. Um, I know that I, I, I seem to be dressed well today, but I'm just going to tell you right now, I'll show you my suit closet that this is about where you're going to go. I mean, this is about it. And I didn't even buy it for myself. So I, I, I don't um, have that many things. I don't own that many things. And so I used to think that I was a pretty frugal person. And then I went over to Africa and I saw people that live on less than $2 a day and don't complain and don't, and don't complain that don't necessarily have the money for three meals a day and, and don't complain. We ran out of food one time when we were distributing food at the church there in Livingstone and one of the pastors said this, it's okay if I don't eat. I'll eat later. And it was asked him, did he eat today? And he said, I did eat today. I'm okay. So he asked him what he ate. He had boiled water and drank it. And he had a piece of stale bread. He ate. He said, I'm good. I ate. I don't know about you, but that hit me hard. That hit me hard. Because... I think sometimes as the church that lives in America that's comfortable, listen, we think we're suffering for Jesus because the temperature when we came in today was a little cool. Ah, it's cold in here. I don't like this. I don't, come on. You can tell your kids when you, when, you can tell your grandkids, you can tell your great grandkids how you suffered for Jesus by going to church here. Oh, it's just so hard. It's just so difficult. We didn't have all the, we didn't have this, we didn't have that. Uh, I'm glad uh, when we're able to encounter some kind of hardship in the culture that we have. Are you with me? And I'm also glad when people don't run from that. Because we need it, don't we? We need it a little bit. Our, our kids are so used to growing up and having everything that makes them comfortable. And here, here's another side of things. When you try to ask people about spending money to go on a mission field, they, they just balk at it completely because they think, I only spend my money to go to places that make me more comfortable. I don't spend my money to go to places that make me uncomfortable. You can almost see the disdain in people when you, when you talk to them. I'm not spending my own money to go to a place. I mean, when I go somewhere and I spend money, I'm going to a place that's more comfortable than where I live, more luxurious, because I deserve that, because I earned that. You see the entitlement that comes into our lives? I'm not saying it's wrong to go on vacation. Take your family on vacation. I'm not even implying that. I'm saying when our attitude becomes that we cannot sacrifice and give, we have to check ourselves, don't we? When we think, I'm not willing to be a part of in sacrifice, and we can see now how materialism and financial tension has power over us, even if we're blind to it. Let's talk about why. Why financial tensions exist and have power over us? Why? Why do they exist? Why is it that money has such power in our lives? Would you agree that money is a powerful thing in our world? I mean, why does the world say things like money talks? It's all about the Benjamins. Somebody got in trouble for saying that recently, didn't they? You know, everything is about 
money, money, money. Money makes the world go round. I mean, how many more quotes can we steal from our culture where and, and believe in themselves that it's all about money. And the answer in this famous, is in this famous verse, in verse number 21. How many love verse 21 of chapter 6? For where your treasure is, there where you are what? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Can I remind you that he comes right out of that to talk about this blindness that comes from our eyes. He talks about the heart, and he talks about this sin that's blinding us from seeing where our treasure is. And I I think, really, there's two reasons why financial tensions exist and and have, why they have such power over us. And I believe the first thing is that money is where we tend to find significance. Money is where we tend to find significance. He, He means here... What Jesus is saying here in verse 21, the place where your heart rests is revealed by money. The place where your heart rests is revealed by money. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what it means is, for many of us, is that money is a way of getting significance. Money is important to us. It has such control over us because it's a way of getting significance. One of the reasons why we need so much money, why we spend it on ourselves and don't give it away like we should, is because money is our significance. The fact that we're able to live in a certain place, the fact that we're able to eat at certain... Come on. We're able to eat at certain places. We can afford to eat at certain places. We can go to certain places. We can dress in a certain way. It makes us feel significant doesn't it? It makes us feel important. I'm able to eat here. I'm able to go here. I'm able to dress this. I don't have to save money in this way. I'm able to do these things, and it gives us some sense of significance. And we don't just look at other people who are below us economically and say, you're below me economically. We say, you're below me. You don't have to be very well off. Middle class people in general feel superior to the poor. We give money and we feel sorry for the poor. We pity the poor, but we feel superior to them. And there's no good reason for us to do that. It's just because of the fact that we find significance in money. We look down, well, someone doesn't have this, or their lifestyle is not this, or maybe they seem less than us, or maybe they seem less put together than us in some ways. And so we we kind of feel sorry for them. We look down on them. And so money is the place where we tend to find significance, but it's also the place where we tend to find security. How many would agree with that? It's a place where we tend to find security. Because my financial portfolio is what's giving me peace. It's what's giving me security. It's making me feel safe, if you would. But other people make money their security. Some people use money for approval. And other people use money for control. Some people use money in order to say, I feel important. But other people use money to say, I'm safe. And I'm asking this question. If you're not giving your money away in radical and sacrificial proportions, if you find it difficult, if you're not so radically generous that the world amazes at the generosity of the Christians around them, and most of us are not, then why? Why is the world not amazed at the generosity of Christians, because it should be. The world 
just like it looks at any other part of our lives and scratches its heads and says, they're peculiar people. They're set apart. They're sanct. They're different. It's by what we do with our money, right? Some of you have given testimonies of that. You've gone to the tax guy. You've gone to, and they ask the question, why would you spend your money on some? Why would you not just spend money on yourself? Or why would you not put money away to make more money? Why would you not just be all about making more money? Why would you give money to something that doesn't have a return financially to you? Because that's what the world scratches its head about. And by the way, they should when it comes to Christians, shouldn't they? They should marvel at it. They should wonder at it. They should, they should say, why in the world would you invest? Why would you give? Why would you, why would you be so involved in this? And by the way, the answer is not because we have to or because we're members and it's a requirement. And the answer is not any of those things. The answer is because we love Jesus supremely. We love him supremely. And we have no other gods, including money, before us. And so we give cheerfully. We give willingly. It's not like at a charity ball where you get a fine dinner and a status quo for donating. Are you with me? Because that's how sometimes people give in church. It's like, where's my recognition? Where's the plaque with my name on it? Are you with me? When is my family going to be honored for the amount of money? Listen, is Christ honored in your giving? That's the question. The question is, is not, are you honored in your giving? The question is, is Christ honored in your giving? When you give, is it by constraint or of necessity? Or is it just out of a heart of love for God? It just says, I get to give because I love God. And I want to give back in a way that shows that supreme love for God. So money is, tends to be where we find security. Let me give you this illustration. There's a professor in Bible college. Many of you would not know his name, but you would know his wife's name. How many have ever heard of Elizabeth Elliot? Elizabeth Elliot went with her husband as a missionary, and her husband was killed. They went to the Aka Indians. Her husband was murdered going there, and then she spent a good portion of her life giving herself and giving her time and her energy and her money towards winning the people that murdered her husband. And by the way, many people came to Christ as a result of her testimony and her witness, and her own husband's murderer came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. I don't know about you, but that is awesome. Her second husband that she took after her husband was murdered was Addison Leach. And by the way, she had three husbands, but not because she was uh, promiscuous. She had three husbands because Addison also died. And, and uh, she lived the rest of, uh, she continued to live her life faithful to God, but her second husband to Elizabeth Elliot was Addison Leach, and he was a professor at a Bible college. He knew a couple of young women who became Christians in college, and they went back to their parents and they said this, we've become Christians and we want to be missionaries. And each of the parents said this, now, dear, you had a religious experience, and that's wonderful but you need some security. Before you go off to have your missionary experience, which is fine, we want you to have a master's degree. We want you to have taken a job or two so you've gotten your career off the ground. We want you to have some money in the bank for some security. I want you to listen to what Leach said. The women came back and they said, what do we say to our parents? And Leach said this. Here's what you'd say. Tell them we're on a little ball of rock spinning through space. It's called earth. And who knows if we're going to run into something 
But even if we don't, someday, under each one of us is going to open a trap door. And everybody's going to fall off. And at the end of your life, a trap door will open up underneath you and you'll fall off the little ball of rock. And underneath will be the everlasting arms of God or nothing at all. And you think a master's degree is going to give you security? I'm not against education and I'm not against uh, working. But how many know that when God calls us, we should listen? You know, many people in this world went headlong into following after God. We can read the biographies of missionaries. This is what my prayer is, church, that we have some biographies to read about today in 100 years. But I'm afraid we won't. I'm afraid we'll have to read the older biographies because where are the people of God from the church that has a lot? From we who have... I mean, people used to leave their jobs to go off and... St- now what we do is we hope that someone God calls someone from the youth group. But you know, God used to call people from the pews where they give up their jobs and they go into the ministry and they say, I understand that this is going to cost me, but I know that God called me and I'm going to obey his call no matter what it costs me. I'm going to tell you this, at the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to regret obeying God. You're not going to regret one sacrifice that you gave to God. You're not going to regret ever giving of yourself or of your life to God. But you will have some regrets for how you didn't do that. How you didn't serve. How you didn't obey Him. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says money seems like it can give you significance, but actually when you make money, you become an arrogant person that nobody likes. And you think money can give you some security, but the fact is that money can't possibly stop death Or tragedy. It can't stop broken relationships. Money cannot be your security because money doesn't secure you. It doesn't keep you from those things. Financial tensions are not alleviated even a little bit by getting more money. Even the world says this, more money? We say, well, just give me a little more anyway. More money, more problems. But we say it's so hypocritically, don't we? Because somewhere inside we think that money would solve our discontentment. We think that somehow it would make our problems today go away. And Jesus is saying to us, watch out. Watch out. The third thing and last thing today. This is what we're talking about with all of our tensions. We talked about marital tension. Last week we talked about family tension. We're talking about your favorite one today, my favorite one, financial tension. But... How can the gospel free us from our financial tensions? So how do we break the power of money in our lives? Well, verse 19 gives us the answer. Look at it with me. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and dust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So what's Jesus saying? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, don't treasure earthly treasure. Treasure heavenly treasure. Don't treasure earthly treasure. Treasure heavenly treasure. Everybody at the center of their soul has something they treasure. And what does it mean to treasure something? It means to look at something, to fill your heart with the beauty and the value of it, And to treasure something is to say, if I have this, everything in life is worth it. 
If I finally get this, everything in life, it could, it could be a career. It could be a status. It might be romance. It might be family. You're looking at it, and it's your treasure. And you think, if I finally get this, I'll have significance. I'll have security. I'll have peace. I'll have rest. My favorite fantasy book, I'm a nerd, Lord of the Rings. It's about this, uh, one of the kids was talking about it, I think one of your kids, Tom, was talking about it on Saturday. And uh, it's about this special ring. It's beautiful. And whoever owns it calls it the precious. The precious. Whoever, whoever has it, they look at it. They, they can't take their eyes off of it. It has so much power over them that it corrupts them. It controls them. It even changes them, transforms them. It changes what they value. It changes the way they see things. And they call it the precious. It's a, it's a wonderful analogy that Tolkien gives for the power of money and wealth in our lives and how ultimate supreme power corrupts us. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying at the center of everybody's soul, there's the precious. Something that you've looked at and said, this is precious to me. If I have this thing, then it's worth it. But whatever that thing is, you're enslaved to it. You become a servant to it. Just like in the fantasy book, they became a slave to whatever they called precious. They became a servant to whatever they treasured because they would do anything to get it, to grasp it, to hold it, to keep it, to not lose it. And you'll do anything to get it because it's the only thing that's worth it. That's why Jesus tells us your heart is in what you treasure. So be careful what you treasure. Because to treasure money is to love money, and the love of money is the root of all evil. The Bible tells us that every treasure but Jesus will insist you die to purchase it. Every treasure but Jesus will insist that you die to purchase it. You have to give of yourself. You have to, I I don't mean necessarily that you literally die, but some people would die to have, you ever hear that expression? I'd die to have that. I'd kill to have that. Well, I don't really mean I'd kill. I don't really mean I'd die, but they're articulating it in a sense of I really need to have this, and I'd give anything up for it. How many people have given up their reputation for what they treasure? Given up their family, for what, given up their marriage for what they treasure? Marriages have been broken. Families have been broken. People have been broken because of this sin. And that's why Jesus is saying, watch out for it. He says, whatever you treasure will insist that you die to purchase it. But Jesus himself is the one treasure who died to purchase you. I want you to think about that for a second. Take that in. Jesus is the treasure who died to purchase you. All other things that you treasure want you to die to acquire it. But the treasure died so that it could acquire us. So he could acquire us. He was the Lord. Think about this. He had the ultimate significance and status. He's God. He's on the throne. But he made himself of no reputation. He took on him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. That is what the greatest man who's ever walked the earth did. How could we look at that and say, well, that's not how I can live my life today? I've heard people even say things like this. I just I scratch my head sometimes. But if Jesus lived today, you know, he'd have a three-piece suit on in church. He'd, he'd be, he'd be, if Jesus lived today, he would look like a common man just like he did then. 
the problem is, is that every culture likes to make Jesus look like them because it's much better for us to make God to look like us than it is for us to look like God. And that's the problem with idolatry, isn't it? Because in idolatry, we always make our idols look like us so we can worship ourselves. And we don't want to look at who God truly is because if we look at who truly, God truly is, then we have to look at ourselves for who we truly are. And boy, that is a despondent look, isn't it? It's a humbling look. That's why everyone who ever in the Bible saw God was humbled. Isaiah said, woe is me when he saw God high and lifted up. I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen. The greatest men who have walked the earth when they experienced a relationship with God were humbled. Paul, who was so high, said, now I'm the less than the least. I am a slave, a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have nothing to boast in, nothing to glory in, nothing good about me, not even in my flesh. There's no good thing. What happened to him? He treasured Jesus because he realized that the treasure died to purchase him. When Jesus came to earth, what happened to him on the cross? He was utterly stripped of his significance, of his status, of his security. He lost all of his treasure. Why? He died for something. Now, you only die for what's precious to you, right? That's what Jesus was pretty clear on. He says, greater love than no, hath no man than this, than what? That a man give himself, die himself for his friends. Jesus looked at us and said, if I have them, even going to hell will be worth it. Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 tells us by prophecy that when he saw the results of his suffering, he was satisfied. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The Bible says he saw his own suffering and was satisfied because he saw the results of his suffering brought about salvation to us who he loved. And so he was satisfied in that. 1 Peter 2, 9 says you're a chosen race. He's talking to Christians. He says you're a holy nation You're a royal priesthood. You're God's purchased possession. You are God's treasure. Let me ask you today, do you know that God treasures you? Do you know that he cares about you? Do you know that if you realize that fully and completely understand that through the gospel, that that alone will free you from money and every other vice? It will free you. He's one of the ways that you know you have spiritual wealth. By the way, how do we know that we've been free? Well, if we treasure Jesus, we can love rich people. How, do, how many of us, sometimes we resent rich people? You feel disdainful of them. You say, look at their money, look at their homes, look at all their stuff, and then you feel superior to them, right? And and shows money still has power over you because if you dislike rich people, if you feel superior to rich people, that shows that money has still got power over you. It shows a lack of spiritual wealth in you. It shows a lack of humility. But if you envy rich people, what does that show? That money still has power over you. The gospel is, by the way, what is the gospel? Because we're applying the gospel to this tension. I love what Keller says this. He says, the gospel is you're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe. You are more loved than you ever dared hope. So the more sinful keeps you from feeling superior to rich people, the more loved 
keeps you from feeling inferior to rich people. Therefore, the gospel puts you in a place where you don't care about money anymore. The best way to see that money no longer has any power over you is that you love rich people. You love people that have wealth, that have money. And you're not envious of them. And you're not covetous, covetous toward them. And you can, you can cheer when someone else gets blessed that has more than you. Are you with me? If you can't celebrate when someone else gets blessed that has more than you, then money has hold on you. It has control over you. But how else can we know if we've been freed through the gospel? If you treasure Jesus, you can love poor people. The way you can tell money has no power over you is that you respect poor people, that you look at them and respect them. You expect to learn from them. Are you with me? You don't look down your nose at them. And that's hard because by and large, money still has power over us because often... When we get around poor people, we look down our nose at them, even if it is piously. Jesus lost all of his treasure to make you his treasure. And by the way, that should humble us. And that melts us. And then it lifts us. And one of the ways you know that money has lost its power over you is that you have no trouble loving rich people, but you also have no trouble loving poor people. You can love all people. Rich and poor, those in status above and those in status underneath. And by the way, that's why the instruction to the church is that we don't think of ourselves highly than we should think, that we're going to come from different social economic backgrounds as we gather together the church. But this is not a competition, are you with me? Of who owns the most or has the most or drives the best or who gives the most. Listen, it's not even a competition of who gives the most. The, the way that you truly experience blessing from God is not by com- becoming more rich or more talented. It's not how you get significance even within the church. Sometimes what we look at a church is say, well, if I give more and I would, if I had more talents, then I would be more important in the church. Listen, what sets people apart in the kingdom of God is not their financial portfolio. It's their surrender. By the way, rich and poor, we can all surrender. The question is not how much money you have. The question is, is how surrendered are you? The question is, is how much of you belongs to God? Isn't that the big question in the Bible? How much of you belongs to God? By the way, you want him to own all of you. Body, soul. And by the way, when he bought you, he bought your body and he bought your soul and he bought your mind, he bought your heart. He bought the whole thing. He says, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. Notice, he doesn't just say in your heart where, no, where God can see. He says, in your body, because it belongs to God. So what I do with my body matters to God. What I do with my money belongs to God. What I do with my time. Therefore, if I eat or drink or whatever I do, I should do all to the glory of God. There's nothing that God should not be able to touch in my life because it all belongs to him then we don't have to have these well-crafted, manipulated campaigns through a preaching message about how to raise more money. I'm not here to raise money today. I'm just here to say all of our money belongs to God. And so when it comes down to the needs that we have, we should just say, okay, God, what do you want me, what do you want me to give? It doesn't belong to me anyway. Because that brings us to the third thing. If I treasure Jesus, I can give sacrificially. This is it. We're done with this. The third, the third sign that money no longer has power over your life is you get really generous. Look at verse 22. It says, the light of the body is the eye. And if your eye be single, the word single is just another word for good, by the way. It doesn't mean you only have one eye. You're, you know. <laughs> you're like, what in the world is it talking about? If my eye be single, I have one eye. 
No, it means if your eyes are good. If your eyes are functioning the way that they should. By the way, the word good here in the Greek has a double meaning. It doesn't just mean that it works. It also means that it works generously. Ooh. (laughs) When I looked at that, I was like, wow. It doesn't just work. It works well. It works generously. It works sufficiently. It works in the fact that it is willing to work in a way that even brings self-sacrifice to itself. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about himself. A Christian who has been freed from money by finding Jesus as their treasure gets a generous eye instead of a dark eye. Before greed, covetousness, beware of greed, beware of covetousness, what does it do? It darkens me. It helps me not even to be aware of the own, that sin that's in my life. I can't see. I'm walking around thinking in my life that I'm not even prideful. I'm not even greedy. It's a sin of my eye. It darkens me. It causes me not to be able to see. But he says, if your treasure truly is Jesus, when you find Jesus as your treasure, you get a generous eye. You're always looking for opportunities. You're looking at your friends. You're looking at your neighbors. You're looking at your church. You're looking at the poor. You're looking at your city. You're always looking for ways to give away. And you wonder how much. You have to look at what Jesus did. When Jesus treasured you, he treasured you sacrificially. So what does that mean? Well, if I want to respond to Jesus, that means I must not simply live out the cross of Jesus in my relationships. I must live out the cross of Jesus in my economic situation as well. That means you have to give enough money away this year that it sacrifices your lifestyle. It sacrifices the lifestyle you could have had if you spent all of that money on yourself. How many of you know that when you give? That you could have done something else with that money, but instead you're giving it to God. And it's going to cost you because you could have done other things with that. But how many have learned not to even regret that or even care about that because you've seen how God takes care of you and blesses you? And so it's just, it's like automatic as we heard in those testimonies. It's just like, that's, I mean, what, I have to do that. I have to give that. Someone who's not treasuring Christ, they just say, well, I can't because I don't have enough. Give what you have. Offer what you have. You'll never have enough, by the way. When do you have enough money? You never have enough. That's the whole crux of money, isn't it? I never have enough. You're never going to have enough, so give of what you have now because that's what God requires. But it's not even a requirement, isn't it? It's just a reasonable response to treasuring Jesus. It's a terrible relationship when someone has to walk up to you and say, Husbands, give something nice. Give a gift to your wife because you love her. You go, fine. I guess it's her birthday. If I can remember it. Or her anniversary. Or I guess if I have to, I'll... Ugh. That's a wonderful relationship, isn't it? Isn't it much better when you just give and there's not necessarily a holiday requiring it? You just say... I give it because I love. It's not a question of how little can I give. It's a question of how generous can I be? How kind can I be to the poor? How kind can I be uh, to those that are in need? How kind, how generous, how much can I? Listen, it's even, a, it's even a testament to saying how little can I live on? Because I'm taking none of it with me anyway. So how much can I honor God in what I have? 
Christian's been freed from money by finding Jesus as their treasure gets a generous eye. If there is no cross in your economic life, if you don't give enough money away that it makes a difference in your lifestyle, then you're not responding to Jesus as he responded to you. For most people, the tithe is the goal. The Bible says give away 10%, and that's a good figure to think about in terms of your giving. And that's a good way to tell whether the gospel is working your heart because if the gospel is working your heart, you see what Jesus Christ has done for you. 10% doesn't seem like much, does it? Jesus went way past the tithe, though. He gave in self-sacrifice. 10% doesn't seem like much. However, for most people, it does mean sacrifice. And by the way, for many of us, 10%, there's a cross in that for us. For some of you today, for you to say, for me to give 10% of my income to God, there would be a cross in that for me. There would be a cost of that for me. And if you say that, listen, the best thing I could say is give to God and see if he won't take care of you. Prove him in that respect in your life. Give and see if he won't take care of you. Put a cross in your economic life. Say, it's got to cost me something. If Jesus is your treasure, you'll love the rich. If Jesus is your treasure, you'll love the poor. If Jesus is your treasure, you'll be giving your money away joyfully, deliberately, happily. I'll close with this. It's the reason why the early church, by the way, was so successful. We have an old letter from Diognetus who told why the early Christians stunned people. He said this. He said, we share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. He said, this is why the church made such an impact on society. We share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. What was he saying? In other words, pagans are promiscuous with their body, but stingy with their money. And Christians are stingy with their body, but promiscuous with their money. And that's what makes us different. Because we honor God with what we have. And only the gospel can set us free from making our earthly possessions what is precious to us and exchanging for making Christ who is precious to us instead. And if Christ finally becomes to us what he was to Abraham, we'll say this of Jesus. He is our exceeding and great reward. Is your treasure Jesus? If your treasure is Jesus, your heart belongs to him. But if your treasure is in anything other than Jesus, your heart belongs to that. And whatever your heart belongs to is your master. That's the rest of the text, isn't it? It drives the way you think, act, behave, and respond. So who's your master today? And I would submit this to you. All other masters are slave drivers. But the master Jesus gives of himself and cares for us loves us and desires to meet our needs. Can we ask God to help us to treasure him above than everything? If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.